0: So I want to continue this week with the theme that I brought in last time, which is that of uh, transforming what we might call reactivity. But I wanted to start uh, just by placing again uh, in context our times that we're at the time when uh, I think most of us, maybe almost all of us, are still sheltering in place many of us certainly and I like to see the current crisis not just as carrying difficulties or challenges but also bringing opportunities that this I think is a very very important perspective that many of us will uh, are having and that the crisis can in many ways bring gifts one possibility is that it can lead to a deepening of our practice. It can lead us to see certain things on a number of different levels that we didn't see before. Many people are really looking into their work. Do I really want to work in an office? I've heard this from a number of people. Do I really want to work in an office eight hours a day? I don't mind the work, but gosh, I sure like having the choice about how I work at home. You know, or it might be on a social level, seeing what the crisis has revealed about the limitations of healthcare or some of the forms of structural inequality that are very much uh, evident. And so there's this opportunity not simply to go back to the quote unquote old normal, but to come back in a different way. And I certainly feel this personally as i as I've mentioned uh, I was uh, scheduled to be on uh four weeks of retreat at Spirit Rock for the month of March uh, we had to come home on March fifteenth and I decided to do the retreat uh remainder at home, which I did also uh, talking regularly to a friend doing the same thing and then we both decided uh with April to actually continue the retreat. So I have continued my retreat, although not as intensively as in March, but still doing something like five or six hours a day of formal practice and following at least a very simple rudimentary schedule. And it's changed a lot. And uh, I don't think I want to go back to being busier. Right? So there, there potentially are these gifts from, from our time. And I, I want to invite us to look at that again on a personal level and on a, on a social level. Mm-hmm. So the, the talk today is part of a larger series which goes back to last year and is on the general theme of moving from the mind of our ordinary conditioning to the Buddha mind from ordinary mind to buddha mind we could use different language but it's going from our ordinary habitual tendencies patterns habits to awakening which of course is the way that we can talk about the you know what we sometimes call the spiritual path in general and what i've done is i've clarified that movement from so-called ordinary mind to Buddha mind according to 10 different dimensions and have given talks already on a number of these. How does our thinking change as we go from ordinary mind to Buddha mind? How about the nature of our hearts, our emotions? What about the experience of the body? What's our experience of time and how does that change? our sense of self and so forth. And today I'm I'm going to continue with a theme that may be, out of all of these, the most central. I think it's arguably the most central in the teachings of the Buddha, and that is that we move from the ordinary mind with strong tendencies towards reactivity, grasping after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, both somewhat automatically and compulsively and habitually we move from that towards non-reactivity towards what we might call responsiveness and we can talk about it more profoundly as freedom and liberation and that's the theme today and what i what i've done in all of these uh explorations in, in exploring each of these dimensions i've had a very simple structure of looking first at the nature of the ordinary conditioning. Secondly, at what seems to be the nature of the Buddha mind, what seems to be the nature of an awakened being according to that dimension. And thirdly, maybe most importantly, how do we get there? How do we practice in that dimension? So for today, I want to really... uh, do a few things. First, I wanna give a kind of review, brief review of what we explored last time in terms of looking at the nature of reactivity. And I think many of you know that reactivity is is the word that I use as giving the most uh, helpful translation of dukkha. You may remember for the Buddha, the aim of practice is to understand dukkha and to end dukkha. So I'm interpreting that as understanding reactivity, transforming reactivity such that it is no longer present. So I'll give a review, and then I'll particularly take us further in looking at some of the, uh, what, more subtle, and more, uh, um, what uh, more advanced ways of working with reactivity? So, first of all, to talk briefly about reactivity and how it gets transformed for an awaken into us becoming awakened more or more awakened is that um, I'm. Looking at reactivity as meaning the more compulsive, automatic, conditioned, habitual way that we grasp after the pleasant and push away what's unpleasant. And I'm making a distinction between reactivity and being responsive. It's a a very ordinary English way of, I believe, of talking about the essence of our practice, which is moving from being reactive to being responsive. Now, in ordinary English, we sometimes use those words uh, to mean the same thing. So I'm giving a more specific meaning to reactivity as meaning more automatic, habitual, and compulsive. In ordinary English, we sometimes say, the person reacted, whatever, wisely, to what was said but I'm so I'm using it the language a little differently and reactivity is something uh, problematic habitual conditioned whereas responsive is I'm using to point to non-reactive free and increasingly coming out of wisdom and compassion so in the Buddhist teaching the I believe that this is the, really the, um, the essence of the, the Buddhist teachings. If I had to really summarize the whole tradition and the Buddhist teachings, it would come down to moving from reactivity to responsiveness. Again, the English words hide the more profound reality of that. <clears throat> the teachings where this is brought out that I looked at last time were two. I looked at part of the teachings of dependent origination and Gabrielle, we can, we can use the um, document now to, to show this. I looked at dependent origination. I also looked at the teaching of the two arrows. And for today, I'm just gonna review briefly <clears throat> the part of the teaching from Dependent Origination, which is the teaching that the Buddha spoke of coming to on the night of his awakening. And this, these four steps, I think, are the essence of our practice. A, Tibetan, a teacher of Tibetan practice, Reginald Ray, said that the entire spiritual path lies in these four steps. And these are the four steps that include first, having contact through our senses with what we might call a sense object, something we hear, something we touch, something we smell um, and so forth, taste and so forth, see something we see. And in uh, Buddhist psychology, there is an understanding that thinking is a sixth sense. So we could also include under contact that when we think of something, that's, that would come under contact. That is part of normal experience. Also part of normal experience is that with every sense experience, there is what we call a feeling tone. The Pali word is Vedana with every experience, the feeling tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The vast majority of our experiences go in the neutral area, and so we don't pay too much attention to them. There can be as much as 98, 99% of our experiences are more neutral. We're especially interested in the pleasant and unpleasant ones, but so they can be big in our experience and in our in our preoccupations, but as a matter of fact, they're relatively a minority. Now, when we have a pleasant feeling tone and we're not mindful and there's a basic ignorance, a misunderstanding of, we might say, of life, of uh, what leads to happiness and wisdom and so forth, we tend when something is pleasant to want it. The the Pali word is tanha, often translated as craving. There's a kind of compulsive wanting. And then we go on, when there's not mindfulness, to grasp after it. Again, this could be something we do uh, through our speech and communication. We want something and we just go very quickly from something seeming pleasant to our grasping after it. It could be what we do with food, something is pleasant, we automatically reach for another uh, soup spoon or whatever. Something, I, I like something and I start preoccupying my thinking about it. We often go very automatically in a split second from contact to grasping. Part of what we'll do with mindfulness is slow down the process so we can notice the feeling tone, notice the wanting, and then have a choice about whether we grasp after something or whether we actually, um, <clears throat> actually choose something. We, because we can choose uh, something without it being grasping. The grasping is particularly pointing towards the more automatic, conditioned, habitual tendency. And we can also do the same process, or we might say more a parallel process with the unpleasant. And this may be more familiar to us. Something unpleasant occurs, there can be not wanting, and then we push it away. Again, often this can be automatic. We hardly notice it happening. Someone says something that I think is mean or I don't like. Someone says something a split second later, I react back to the person, say something nasty, or um, I don't like uh, a taste and I just automatically react in some way, or I don't like something. Um, and so this is the basic dynamic. Again, again, it's not saying that we shouldn't, as it were, remove a difficult or unpleasant experience, but the question is, do we do so With wisdom and mindfulness, or do we do so automatically and habitually? And so we can come back, uh, we can let go of the document now, Gabrielle, and come back. And so the core of the Buddha's teaching is teaching us how to not be reactive. The Buddha once said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha, and I'm interpreting the most essential meaning of dukkha being that of reactivity, even though it's not a literal translation. And last time I talked in some detail about how this understanding of dukkha is confusing. And even in the core translations, dukkha is often translated as suffering, which can be confusing for people because suffering and pain seem to be a part of life. And so what does it mean to end Dukkha? Either we have to give a technical meaning for suffering, or it doesn't make so much sense. And I gave last time a more detailed account of the different meanings in the Pali text. The issue is, is that, that the Buddha uh, gave teachings on Dukkha multiple times in different ways. And because it was an oral tradition, we have these different meanings, but I would say that the core meaning is that of reactivity, is that of this more compulsive pushing away of some aspect of our experience or some grasping after it. And so uh, when we look to even the experiences during the pandemic, we can see that there can be different forms of reactivity uh, which are highlighted. They can come through emotions. We can be anxious. There can be fear, and that can become very reactive. We may um, be bored. We don't like the present moment. We may have anger at, in various ways, at the government, at some of our leaders, and so forth we may be very reactive in that way. We may have uh, reactivity connected with sadness or loneliness. Of course, uh, through our interpersonal relationships or maybe through our work relationships, we can be very reactive. And I'll, I'll say more about reactivity, but I think we can have a, an initial sense of reactivity that this is a very strong, what, uh, habitual tendency In our lives, it's very, very common that we grasp after the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. And again, I would say, and here I'll I'll go to the second area I'll review for the Buddha, the essence of practice is to end reactivity. And we can see in particularly in many of his accounts of what awakening means, he talks about awakening. He talks about the mind of the Buddha as being a mind that is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And greed is really a term that could be a stand-in for grasping after the pleasant. That's really greed. That's the essence of greed, grasping after the pleasant. And the essence of what's translated as hatred is really that habitual pushing away of the unpleasant, right? So I think these are code for ending, grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant. I had a few uh, texts I just wanted to read. One is from the Dhammapada, I think I read this last time, that really point out how the awakened mind is the non-reactive mind. This is from the Dhammapada, translated by Gil Fransdell. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, thus those who awaken, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, are luminous, and completely liberated in this life. And then some passages, this is from the book, uh, In the Buddha's Words. Uh, edited by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great translator. And these are in the Buddha's account of Nibbana. This is what he says. The Buddha says, what is Nibbana? The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion this friend is called Nibbana. He sometimes gives uh, a synonym of liberation and Nibbana as touching the the unconditioned. He says, what practitioners is the unconditioned? The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. So it's a very close connection, I would say, between ending reactivity and awakening. Coming to freedom, coming to liberation. And as is sometimes said, simple in concept, hard in practice, right? But I think it's helpful to see that uh, there's a essence to this teaching that is extremely simple. It's very, very helpful. And again, I think it can be confusing when we translate dukkha as suffering because it's not very clear what the end of suffering means, especially if we don't make a distinction between pain and suffering. We certainly don't get rid of unpleasant experiences of the body of the mind. Those continue to occur. What I would say we end is reactivity. So how do we practice? Last time... I looked, I identified six ways that we practice, and I talked about four of them. I'll just review those briefly, but these are our foundational practices. First, cultivate non-reactivity. We almost have to uh, carve out a liberated space. We cultivate non-reactivity in part by cultivating mindfulness. Every moment of mindfulness is non-reactive. We cultivate mindfulness and we have some non-reactivity. And we, in a way, because we need a certain level of non-reactivity to explore reactivity and develop further. We can do that through metta. We can do that through various ways that we come to a sense of peace, equanimity, and presence. So first practice that is helpful for working with reactivity is cultivate non-reactivity. Secondly, on the basis of uh, mindfulness, be mindful when there's reactivity. Study the reactivity, notice when it occurs. And again, last time, I gave the very important qualification that we need when we're exploring reactivity to make an initial assessment of what I called last time, the degree of difficulty, the degree of intensity. It doesn't work if we try to explore reactivity and it's too powerful for us, it's in the overwhelm zone. And so we need to have an assessment, first of all, if some if we're being reactive, if we're really upset by something that happened an hour ago, and we we try to be mindful and it's just too much, we can't really be mindful. We can be mindful only to the extent that we know what's happening, but we may want to do something else, take a walk, talk with a friend, maybe do compassion practice, loving kindness practice. And so that's a very important uh, first step in being mindful of reactivity. If we do have it in the, uh, the workable zone, then it's really crucial and a cr- big part of our practice, just over and over again, study, reactivity. Again, I like to joke that's not in the original literature for most uh, meditation centers. Come, learn about your reactivity. Know more about your reactivity than you would have ever wanted to know. Hang out with your reactivity. Forget about bliss. Forget about love. Forget about compassion. Study your reactivity. None of us would have come to a meditation class if that was in the advertising, right? So we want to, uh, on the other hand, and so maybe this uh, teaching that I'm offering today is really a teaching that uh, is more of the intermediate, more intermediate, not always something at the beginning level, although some people would certainly welcome it. So we want to look at the process of reactivity. We want to be with our anger, with our irritation, with our anxiety, with our mind repeating, this person did this, this person did that, with being judgmental and so forth, and explore it. And last time I said we can explore it in the body, in the emotions, in the narrative. Very, very crucial. The third way of practicing is to strengthen our wisdom about the nature of reactivity, really to go back to the core teachings. Much, much as in the teaching of uh, Dependent Origination, the two arrows teaching I gave last time. The fourth, the fourth very crucial dimension is to hold this all with compassion and a kind heart. When we notice reactivity, particularly when it's strong, to really um, hold it with compassion. If there's a lot of reactivity, Come back, to, come back to compassion, do loving kindness practice, do forgiveness practice, do the one of the heart practices to really, to really balance that out. So those are the four that I gave last time, the four practices I looked at. I wanna bring in a um, important complexity of working with reactivity which will help us to work with what I call the fifth area, which I would um, talk about in terms of working with our psychological and social conditioning. But I want more to uh, access that through talking about this complexity of reactivity. You may have noticed that when you're reactive about something, when you're judgmental or anxious, and there's reactivity or angry, you may have noticed that you often have a good point on your side. You may have noticed that reactivity gets mixed up with seeing something clearly. When my friend doesn't keep my, the agreement we had and I become reactive, I noticed something that's important, that my friend didn't keep the agreement. I can still be really reactive, but I noticed something important. When I notice social injustice, I can be really reactive about social injustice, but I noticed something important. Now, I think what happens to us often is we think, I have something valid or important on my side. I think we don't say this exactly, but I think implicitly we think, oh, I've got something on my side. Therefore, my reactivity is completely justified, right? My friend is clearly in the wrong, not keeping the agreement. There's clearly injustice. And so I can be very, very reactive. And I think when we look to a lot of our reactivity, maybe even most of it, we can notice something that could have some value, that could meet a need. When I really, really grasp after going to this restaurant, right, and I get really reactive and graspy, well, maybe there's something valuable. You know, maybe the curry is really, really good, and that's important for me to know, right? Right, or how many of you can identify with that uh, point that often with reactivity, there's something actually valuable in the reactivity? How many of you can see that in your own experience, right? Right, and so doesn't this make working with reactivity more complex? That there is with reactivity often, I think most of the time, some kind of noticing, some kind of intelligence, some kind of value what we might call some kind of discernment. I might be anxious about my finances and be really reactive and judge myself. Well, there could be something there that's important, right? And one way that I like to talk about this is to say that reactivity is a mix in many, many cases. I think there are cases where it gets towards pure greed or pure hatred, but most, and maybe most of our relevant uh, examples of reactivity, there's something uh, valuable that gets mixed with the reactivity. Doesn't that make it complex? Doesn't it make it hard to deal with, right? My friend really didn't keep the agreement. Aren't I just completely right to be judgmental? Why not, right? And so how do we work with that? And And I would say also what's valuable in the re, with the uh, reactivity often hooks us, right? so so how do we work with that? Uh, another way to talk about it is that we don't simply want to get rid of our reactivity. We want, I would say a better way to think about it, a better way to hold it is that we transform our reactivity rather than just simply get rid of it. We don't suppress our anger. We don't suppress our reactivity, that would be unskillful. and We would also tend to miss out on what's valuable in the reactivity, but rather, here's the formula that I think is really important. We transform the reactivity by separating out what's valuable from the reactivity transform the reactivity part of it, and then use what's valuable on behalf of wise and compassionate action. Does that make some sense? That we want to, that if I'm right, that reactivity is very, very commonly a mix of something that's helpful or valuable and our reactivity, then what we wanna do is ultimately transform the reactivity in part by separating out what's valuable from the reactivity and be able ultimately to use what's helpful through compassionate, skillful action. So I can, for example, with my friend, if I work internally with my anger and irritation at the person not keeping the agreement, and work in various ways through mindfulness, through heart practices, and I come out the other end where I'm not where I'm no longer reactive towards my friend. Maybe I, you know, I have just worked through it. Then I can actually skillfully bring up the issue with my friend in a non-reactive way. In a similar way, I would say this holds very much also even for work to transform injustice that if we're very reactive as activists we will tend to be polarizing and i would say less successful and if we can transform the reactivity we tend not to be so demonizing or opposing and i would say we tend to be more skillful we can have more allies and so so then the question is how do we do that how do we work with the reactivity and transform it. So here I'll give a few suggestions for how to transform our reactivity and then I'll ask Eve to sing her song because this is really about a way, her song is about a way of working with a major form of reactivity, which is being judgmental and particularly being self-judgmental one of the main forms of reactivity that uh, we experience. We can often, very often, be self-judgmental and again, we can look at it and see that there seems to be often some validity. Okay, I didn't do that project well. I can really get down on myself and judge myself really, really harshly. Isn't there some validity to that? And so again, um, the work we can do particularly to separate out the, what's maybe have some validity from the uh, reactivity is very crucial here. And this is also, I think, and I'll talk more about this next time. Part of what this means is that we can actually use moments of reactivity, experiences of reactivity as a way to not only transform the reactivity. But what we'll find is that our reactivity, we can see often as being very habitual. There may be very, very old patterns of reactivity, being judgmental of ourselves. You know, another pattern that uh, I was talking about with someone yesterday is being the one who's always right. You know, one person I work with talks about this as the more being the moral authority. So now anyone here identify with sometimes taking that role of I'm the moral authority, I decide what's right. Right. And, um, very, very common. Um, we were talking about it in terms of walking outside and being the moral authority about people who get too close, who get within six feet. Right. And, and the, moral authority slash reactivity gets going, right? Anyone recognize that? That one with the, these people who are just not very clear about what six feet means, right? How could they do that, right? And so there's an opportunity here to see some of our old patterns. Okay, so a few ways to practice to transform reactivity, noticing that there's something valuable. This is all dependent on the other ways of practicing as well, but this is a more intermediate or advanced form of practice. Okay. First of all, notice your top five forms of reactivity. Make a list, study your reactivity and drop a list of what are your top five. What are the most common? Secondly, look for the patterns. Look for the reactive patterns. This can mean when you study, when you're mindful of the reactivity, and you also can reflect sometimes, ask the question, what triggered my reactivity? Start to see the pattern as including something that triggers it as well as how it gets expressed. Okay, so we can, we can uh, look for what triggers reactivity. When I was studying reactivity in depth with one particular issue, I noticed that uh, this was uh, in a situation where I had a boss who often I thought didn't listen to me. And I would notice myself very reactive when I would bring up something and he didn't seem to notice it and would change the subject. And so I got to see that when I studied the reactivity with him, I got to see that, oh, it occurs. I get reactive when I think this person didn't see me, didn't hear me, didn't listen. And I started soon noticing it in other situations. So we want to notice what the top five are. We want to notice patterns. What triggers my reactivity? What, how, do I, how does my reactivity express itself? Another way to practice sometimes is to see if we can actually notice with the reactivity underneath it, what's the pleasant experience that I'm grasping after or the unpleasant experience I'm pushing away. When I did work with the boss who I thought wasn't listening to me, I was able sometimes in the moment when that happened to actually try to notice, oh, When he would not listen to me, I would say, oh, that doesn't feel good. That's painful not to be heard, not to be listened to. And sometimes I could actually experience it in the moment. When I actually experienced the painful experience and felt it directly, my mind wouldn't get reactive so much because I was actually touching what was painful. I would say that a lot of our more developed forms of reactivity are being judgmental, are thinking certain thoughts, are often get very elaborated because we don't touch the underlying emotion or experience. And so a lot of reactivity, I would say, is based on not touching some underlying pain. It may be because it's in our past, we don't acknowledge it, But often reactivity can hide unconscious or unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. And there are ways we can work with that to discover it. One is to, in the moment, see if we can notice the unpleasant experience like I did with my boss. I could notice, oh, I could actually slow things down and notice, oh, that didn't feel good not to be heard. Another practice we can do when we notice ourselves being reactive and it's in the workable range, we can bring the attention into the body. Notice if there are thoughts or or especially emotions or experiences of the body. Beneath the level of thoughts, we move from the level of thinking, the reactivity is thinking, we move into the body and just hang out with the bodily level. Sometimes we'll notice we were just repeating thoughts for 10 minutes. Oh, I move to the body oh i'm really angry about that and we may not even even have known that so i call this the dropping down practice we can move from the level of the thinking reactivity into the body into the emotions and sometimes we can actually touch what's beneath the reactivity often when we do that there's some transformation And so we can—that becomes a very important way to, to work. And next time I'll look at some further ways of working. We can also sometimes work with the narratives and the views and look at those more carefully. And I think I'll—I'll I'll work with that more next time. Maybe the last thing to say, maybe two more things to say. Sometimes our forms of reactivity can really be supported by another person. It could be a mentor, a coach, a friend, sometimes a professional, a therapist, or someone who works with trauma. Sometimes some of our most persistent patterns of reactivity may be very old and very deep and can be helped by by working with someone someone else in one of those capacities. That's that's important. <clears throat> Actually, I had three things to say. Then the two last things to say are in all of this, we can start to notice the reactivity. And we can also start to notice, is there some intelligence or value in my reactivity? Something that's important not to lose, like the fact this person didn't keep the agreement. Or I think it's important people aren't keeping to the six feet. That's important to notice. Right, or uh, like you know, some of my expressions of the judgmental mind could have something valuable. And then, lastly, in all of this again, hold it all with compassion, forgiveness, loving kindness. That this is a difficult experience, and we want to do some of the heart practices. If we're working a lot with reactivity, really crucial to be doing. Periods with loving kindness, compassion, or forgiveness um, at the same time. Maybe I'll end there, and I'll let uh, I'll let Eve end with uh, a wonderful song called "Simple Truth," which is really about uh, ways of working with uh, the form of reactivity we call being judgmental towards self. I'll turn it over to Eve.
1: Thank you, Donald. So this uh,
2: song, um, I was thinking about the list Donald just gave us about how to work with reactivity. Number four, hold it all with compassion. The way I see it, there are two choices. I can wait for all these voices. Tell me I have made it. Or I can love myself the way I am, the way I see it. There are two choices. Try to do it their way, or find my own rejoicing music play. I've been given a responsibility to love myself like I would love a child. Wild and turning Building bridges Bridges burning Just as I am To love myself first your coldness might not hurt as much maybe if I work harder try more do more faster longer the day will come when I feel loved by everyone I've been given a responsibility to love myself can fall. No striving, no have-tos at all. The sparkling green that breathes me just as I am. Love
0: Thank you, Eve. I don't know what a Zoom applause looks like, but I guess people do our hands like this, so Thank you, Eve. And I want to invite uh, just a few moments now to reflect and to see what was helpful from the song, from the from the talk as well, related to the theme of working with reactivity how might you like to take how might you like to take this into the next period of time if you'd like for the next 2 weeks we'll come back in 2 weeks so how would what insights or learnings related to the talk and the song are important and how might you take those further just take a moment or two to reflect So thank you. We can have a in a moment a uh, little bit of time for discussion, questions, uh, sharing. Maybe if people explored reactivity in the last week. But I also want to say that on the uh, on the chat function, uh, uh, Gabrielle has put up a number of events that uh, and Eve's website. If you're interested in having further contact with Eve, uh, again she's teaching. I don't know four or five times a week online so those uh, references are on the chat function uh, if you want to take a look at that yeah thank you again Eve so again could be uh, a question about related to the talk and reactivity could be a sharing of some way that you've worked with reactivity from the last week or uh, a sharing of um, some example of reactivity and a question about it. So we, you can, um, I think Gabrielle will recognize you if you can uh, uh, click the raise hand function or actually raise your hand as well and we'll, we'll go one at a time.
1: Donald, I also sent you a question in your um, chat box to you that somebody.
0: Yeah, maybe you me. could It would be helpful, Gabrielle. Maybe you could read that. Uh, that'd be easier for me.
1: So I find that the practice of mental noting often induces a more volatile, chaotic meditation and more monkey mind in me. I will realize that there is thinking and have lost focus on the anchor. I will make the mental note thinking, planning, remembering, but then I seem to be swept up in the meta-analysis. If I don't do mental noting, then I'm able to regain focus on the anchor more reliably. Is mental noting necessary? What is the benefit of mental noting?
0: Great, it's a great question. Uh, mental noting is an optional technique, so it's not necessary. Uh, it was especially developed by the Burmese teacher Mahasi Sayadaw, you know, based on some readings of the uh, texts of the Buddha. Uh, But the, we do want to see clearly what's happening. So the benefit of mental noting is that we're actually noticing what's going on. And this can be very helpful for seeing patterns, for uh, noticing what are the top five or top 10 thoughts, uh, visitors and so forth. One way to work skillfully with mental noting is to have it be light and also to uh, uh, not have it as much as possible, just have it light without too much energy, just notice planning and then come back. And uh, another thing might be to, to really try to check the tendency to have the noting lead to further thinking. So if you keep the noting light, and try to have it, sometimes people do noting with a lot of emotional energy. Planning, get out of here, right? But use it lightly, as much as possible, somewhat neutrally. Um, so the two the two options would be to work with noting in a slightly different way, so that the noting is uh, lighter and doesn't go to so much thinking. Um, another option would be to just have it use one word, thinking. If, if there are tendencies to a lot of thought, which it sounds like it from the question, you might have just very simple noting, have it be very soft and light in the mind. And then the third option is to, uh, is to, uh, to drop it. And, and you may be able to stabilize mind better that way. And then maybe at a future time, we do wanna know you can come back and uh, use it, but it is important for us to know what's happening when there's judgmental mind there, to really know that's happening. That is that is important. We can do it in a few different ways. Okay, others, other?
1: So I have Michael raising his hand from Santa Monica. Michael, I'm gonna unmute you, and you can ask your question.
0: Okay, and will I be able to see Michael?
1: Uh, if he's got his camera on.
0: Okay.
3: Um, trying to start the video and...
1: I see you. Oh, you just needed yourself. Okay. Okay. Can there
3: you, you hear me? Yep, you're oh, awesome. Okay. Hi, Michael. Donald, Thank you much. This has been really helpful.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, I've heard you before talking about reactivity, but somehow today, it really, really felt it inside, my guts,
0: yeah. not,
3: like I understand it. And how, what kind of big role it plays. Um, I, I took what you said and put it down in, in kind of notes, but to the, in my way of understanding it, and I just want to say it the way I wrote it and tell me whether I'm understanding it correctly. Sure. Uh, number one is look at my top five triggers. What are the triggers that uh, lead me to reactivity? And number two is when I recognize what those triggers are, how do I react to it? What are my five top five patterns? It helps me because then I just sort of, okay, five, it's a number, all right? I'm gonna look at, explore these five triggers and five patterns. Um, one that I already realized before even this talk, but years ago, is one pattern, is um, speech, unwise mm-hmm. speech. Um, and so very often I, I now realize the wisdom of not saying, because when I say, it becomes a reactive statement right. that doesn't help me and doesn't help the situation. Right. It goes back to a very wise statement. It's, you can't, it it says, expresses it very well in Russian. But not in English, which is which means my mouth is my enemy. <laughs> and if I remember, you know, my mouth is my enemy, and there's just four words in Russian, it helps me to say, don't talk, no matter what, no matter how much I'm reacting at the moment. The wise thing to do is not to say anything.
0: Great. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the. Uh the Russian phrase. uh, I imagine that could be also in other languages. (laughs) It's common enough. Uh, Yeah, I was thinking, uh, I remember a quote, I think it's from Shantideva from the eighth century from Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And he has a line that goes something like this. Uh, It's essentially, when I'm angry and really reactive, be like a bump on a log. Don't, don't act, right? So it's the same sentiment. Yeah, in terms of your identifying triggers and patterns, I think that that could be one way to do it. Uh, I think my, my list was just a little bit different, but I think and maybe we mean by triggers, the same thing. I was really basically saying, what are the what are the top five themes? So it could be uh, yeah, could a theme could be my you know, I'm judgmental of myself could be a theme you know, or I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, irritated towards my neighbor, or whatever. Uh, but, but the, you may be using trigger exactly the same way. So that that would be that could be fine. And then yeah, and then so it's the idea is just is mostly focus on what the main occurrences are, the repetitive occurrences, like I might find myself self judgmental quite often, Right? Or I might uh, find myself making moral comments about others very, very often. That's what we want to hone in on. And then the, the second thing would be, you know, seeing the pattern. By patterns, I was meaning, yeah, what's a typical trigger, okay, um, for being a moral authority? It could be, you know, if I walk out, it could be the six feet guideline. That could be it. Or, you know, or more generally, I might think when I think someone, isn't following a rule or something. So it's, it's really, these are ways of um, getting more familiar with the pattern. But I think uh, yours sound like they could uh, work quite well. So thanks, Michael. Thank Thank you. Other sharing from the last week or a question?
1: Nothing's come through so far.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or it could just be, uh, you know, a a thought you want to add to the mix. Yeah, please, I see a hand, Shirley.
1: If they could raise their hand. Keep your hand
0: up, Shirley, so uh, Gabrielle can see it. I see you. Or if she can
1: raise it on the uh, participant list. Let me see if I can find
0: her. Under Shirley. I see her. She's in the first gallery view, lower right.
1: Up there, Shirley.
0: Okay.
1: All right, Shirley, you're on. I tried unmuting myself, but it didn't work.
4: I had a very interesting experience last last week. I had to laugh at myself when I when I realized what I was doing. I was very reactive to your talk on reactivity Don. <laughs> And, and um, mm. I thought, oh, you know, I mean, that was good stuff. I mean, he was just telling us something that could be valuable to us. What's up? What's up? So I, mm. it, it took me days of of going deeper and deeper into what on earth is happening here.
0: Yeah.
4: You know, and uh, and what I realized was I was really frustrated with the, with the technology. Oh. That was one of the things. I couldn't get through on the chat. On the chat, uh, the group chat, I couldn't get through at all. I couldn't get my message down, and my message was, I would like to be breaking into uh, Zoom rooms you know, so that we can have, you know, um, four people discussing yeah. what you have to say, and, and uh, in a way that we can then apply these, these principles to our lives. But what I really realized was what was happening was that I wasn't getting heard. I wasn't getting through. I wasn't being heard. Yeah. Now what is that all about? I mean, what is it? What is it in me that, that reacts so so um, that overreacts so much yeah. to not being seen or heard? And then today I went to sign in and my camera wasn't working, oh, so wow. I wasn't going to be seen. Oh wow! wow. So when I looked at uh, at at the, the deeper significance of not being seen or not being heard. Uh, it was a, it was really a good learning for me. It took me about a week <laughs> between yeah. last time and this time to um, to sort it all out. Great. So thank you. So
0: yeah. thank, you. thank you, Shirley. It's um, a beautiful, beautiful inquiry. Uh, and mm-hmm. thanks for uh, hanging in there, right? I mean, you had a... Yeah, well, you're... it was so uncomfortable.
4: I yeah. just what you say about the discomfort. is something that kind of motivates you to... Yeah. Uh, to, to try and get to the bottom,
0: yeah. But you have very, very, I think I, I sense a strong quality of inquiry because many mm-hmm. people, if they're reactive towards my talk, they wouldn't show up the next week. I wasn't
4: going to. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't going to. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to wait for Sylvia. I'm not
0: going to go back. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, right, so, so that quality of really, but there was part of you that wanted to, see what the reactivity was about, right? Yeah. And, and and then coming to that sense of not feeling seen or heard, and, you know, in terms of the chat function, we disable the chat with each other, but it can just go to the host, and there are pros and cons of having the small groups. You know, we yeah, mm-hmm. we found out. I'm okay
4: action. with that. I'm right? okay with that now. Yeah. It's just, you know, it just was.
0: The- that's what was coming through. Yeah. There, you know, if, if I was doing in person, I almost certainly would do uh, breakout groups, small groups. Mm-hmm. But but my, the main thing is I think that you stayed with it and it took you deeper. Yeah. And you came to a sense of not feeling seen and heard, which is so fundamental for us as human beings. Ne- next time when I come back, I'm going to go more into depth on those kind of views, which most of us, You know, I mean, that was behind my reactivity with my boss that I described, very similar. And it it was pretty intense to sense I'm not feeling heard, right? And I could look around at other parts of my experience and see it was big for me. And, you know, for me, it also goes back to ways in which I experienced that in my life, including while young, you know, so it can go back a long time even though it's something very fundamental for almost all of us as human beings. So I think next time when I come, I'm going to give some specific ways of working directly to see further what that's about for the time being, the ways of practicing that I'm suggesting that I suggested today would be very helpful. So for example, if something like that occurs again in your experience, Notice it. You can use that practice I call dropping down. Notice, you know, that you're feeling very reactive. That person didn't really hear me, you know, or whatever. And notice that in your mind. And you can also do this sometimes after the fact, bring it deliberately back to your mind after the fact, let it be there for a minute or so, and then bring you the attention to like the center of the chest. And just hold it there for a few minutes, two or three minutes at the most, and see what comes. Sometimes nothing will come. Sometimes you'll notice something beneath the surface. And that practice done a lot can sometimes reveal. You know, when I first did it, it took me, you know, doing it 50 times before I had any results. So just to say that. But uh, essentially, we can sometimes... uh, see what the reactivity is about, and use different tools for going deeper. One of them is going into the body, touching the mix of emotions at times that are beneath the surface. You know, that can sometimes really open things up. And then there are also some other practices I'll do next time. And the other piece is to hold it with, uh, do some heart practices, hold it with compassion uh, the main thing is probably just study it. Notice how it appears at other times in your life with other situations. And again, the dropping down practice, you can deliberately doing do it even when it's not current. You can at the end, especially when you're at the end of a meditation, and you can bring it to mind, some situation, let it be there for a minute, and then bring your attention to your heart. Not to think about it, but more to feel what's beneath the surface. So that practice benefits especially when the mind is relatively quiet. So it's not about thinking; it's about experiential uh, inquiry. So thank you for your uh, willingness to be real, honest, and direct, and uh, thank you a lot, Shirley. Yeah, uh, one of
4: the triggers for me is this this damn virus. I've been this is day 61 for me to be yeah. alone, living alone. Yeah with with no with no you know, little social contact.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, are there are there ways that you can like like mm-hmm. here uh, increase the social contact more? Yes,
4: uh, yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no it's hard for all of us and the other side of it is that sometimes people who aren't alone wish they were alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right so it's, thank you,
4: thank you Donald.
0: Yeah, that's okay. So Thank you. Thank you, Shirley, and thanks everyone. And again, maybe just to close, uh, remember your intention for continuing this practice. I hope that many of us will come back in two weeks. Again, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Sylvia next week. I'll tell her what we've explored, and uh, we'll see what she does. And then we'll come back in two weeks, and I'll take us a little more deeply with the same theme and go more into how we work with um, more persistent patterns like the one that Shirley identified. Yeah, thank you. So let's sit quietly for a moment. Reflect on how we'll, if we wish, bring this into practice. And we close with a traditional dedication of merit. May the benefits of the morning, the benefits of our practice be there for us and also be shared with others, ultimately all others. May our practice be a benefit ultimately for all beings, which includes us. So pleasure to be with you and uh, May we explore reactivity with skill and good results. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to
1: unmute everybody. So if you want to say oh, goodbye, you know, you're
0: welcome to. Yeah, let them say goodbye. That's the sweetest part of this. Leave everyone <laughs> unmuted. Bye. 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 Bye.
1: Bye. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you,
4: Shirley. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay. So
1: valuable, thank Donald. You, thank, Donald. You. thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the support staff.
0: Yeah, thank you, Gabrielle.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Donald.
0: Thank Donald. you, Eve. Beautiful song.
1: Thank you, Eve. Thank you,
0: Eve. Yeah. Thank,
1: thank you, Eve. Thank you, Eve. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, thank you. So helpful.
0: Thank you. Thank you for Donald, the real this world is such
1: examples. A deep exploration.
4: Thank yeah. you.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Bye, bye, everyone.
4: Bye, bye. Bye, Donald. <laughs> okay.